What's up, Flatirons? How are we? Hey, it's, uh, it's really good to be back with you guys. It's been a few weeks since I've, I've been up here. It's been great to hear stories and see things about what God's been doing up here over the past several weeks. And uh, just so you guys know, you guys gave almost 9,000 pounds of food last week, which is incredible. Well done. That's awesome. Uh, Echo... We gave, we gave 40% of our food to, to Echo up here, and they said it was the best, the best food drive they've ever had by far, hands down. This is the most food they've ever gotten at one time, which is incredible. It's, it's been awesome to hear about things that are going on up here from Baptism Weekend and how awesome it was that it didn't snow on Baptism Weekend, which is a good thing. That would have put a damper on things. Almost 100 people got baptized up here. I'm really, really proud of, of Jesse, our campus pastor up here, how, he, how he's been leading, and Laura and kids ministry, and Luke up here on the stage, and Matt back there, and everybody else who's been leading around here. It's just been amazing to be a part of this journey alongside of you guys as, uh, as this church gets going. And we've been probably the most well-timed series ever for launching another church, another campus, is this thing called Big Rocks that we've been in, where we've been looking at these foundational, fundamental, most important things that must be in place in Flatirons Community Church if we really want to reflect the first church, which really reflected the heart of God when he came up with the idea of the church to begin with. And so we've been looking at what are, what are the foundational fundamental values that we have around here. And the first one is this thing called biblical authority. In other words, we really believe the Bible is God's word and only the Bible is God's word. And we believe if we'll align ourselves underneath of its authority, that points to a better way to do life. And then the second one is this thing called relational intimacy. We really do believe around here that Jesus, because of his death on the cross and his death conquering resurrection, is the only way to be reconnected in a permanent right relationship with God. This, this thing called authentic community, we really believe that life is better when you live it shared in an authentic, real, raw way with one another, where you put your masks away and you stop pretending to be somebody that you're not, and you're just honest with one another, and nobody throws stones at each other, but rather you link arms and you say, how about if we follow Jesus together, and we just call that Me Too. And then last week we were exploring this thing called gifted service, where Jim's been really unpacking this thing of this truth that God the Holy Spirit indwells every believer, and not only does he indwell every believer, but he empowers and equips every believer to do what God has called them to do. And so today what we're kind of going to do is we're going to bridge uh, two, two values to one another. We're going to bridge gifted service to this next value that we're going to be looking at, which is called excellent environments, uh, which simply means this. We want to remove barriers and obstacles and roadblocks that people often run into when they go to church looking to meet Jesus. They run into a whole bunch of things that get in the way of them actually meeting Jesus. So we want people to actually bump into Jesus. So we're trying our best to remove as many barriers and obstacles and roadblocks as possible, except for Jesus himself, so that Jesus can do what only Jesus can do, which is change people. You and I are not in the business of changing people. We can't change people. What we do is this. We do what we've been commanded to do and empowered to do by the Holy Spirit so that Jesus can do what only he can do, which is change, change people. And one of the things I've loved about this series so far is I feel like this series has really been unpacking some of the most significant questions you can ever ask in life. The, the first question is simply this, who is Jesus? That question matters. How you answer that question matters. What you do with Jesus matters. And we believe as a church that every person on the planet should have the opportunity to answer that question, who is, who is Jesus? C.S. Lewis famously put it this way, when he's either a liar, he's trying to deceive everybody he's ever influenced, he's a lunatic, he's absolutely off his rocker, or he's Lord. But don't come with any condescending nonsense about him being some good teacher. He didn't leave that option open to you because Jesus claimed that he was the creator of the universe. And the only explanation for that is he's either a liar, he's trying to deceive you, he's absolutely crazy, or he is who he says he is. And if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is King Jesus, if he is Commander Jesus, if he is creator of the universe Jesus, then... 
That has huge ramifications with this next question, which is, which is this. Who does Jesus say that I am? Who does Jesus say that I am? And if he's the creator of the universe, who does he say that I am? See, Jim talked about this last week. You and I, we have a tendency to tie our identity to our behavior. Whatever we did last, whatever, when we lay our heads down at night and put our heads on the pillow, we have this tendency to go, okay, did I do more good stuff than bad stuff or bad stuff than good stuff? And if I did more good stuff than bad stuff, then I'm okay with God. If I did more bad stuff than good stuff, then I'm not okay with God and I have to make up for it tomorrow. We have a tendency to tie our identity to our performance. And as Jim was unpacking that last week, I was thinking about my son, Eli, who plays baseball right now he's I coach his team he's he's eight years old and he has a tendency to tie his identity to his last at bat you you know what I'm talking about so like he went through what every baseball player goes through a a few games ago he had two games where he went into a horrible hitting slump like he wasn't even making making contact I think he struck out eight out of nine times and I remember one of those games I was coaching after he struck out like the ninth time like he just despondent walking into the dugout slamming things around and everything like that he's a little bit volatile sometimes and he's walking out onto the onto the field and he's got his his glove and his hat on he's just got his head down I put my arm around him trying to encourage him and he looks at me and his eyes are filled with tears he's trying his best to hold him back and he just looks at me and goes I'm just a terrible hitter you take it on that identity of I'm a terrible hitter. And I looked at him, well, you're not a terrible hitter. You're going through a slump. We go out before the next game. We work on his swing for like 30 minutes. And he, he, he's been like 11 for 13 since. Of course, now he thinks he's God's gift to hitting. He, he ties in his identity to his last at bat. And what I'm saying is I think you and I have a tendency to do that with life. Whatever you did last, whether it was good or bad or in between, we have a tendency to tie our identity into that. Instead of tying our identity into what Jesus has done for us and tying our identity in the fact that we are a child of God. See, if Jesus, the creator of the universe, actually means all those things that Jim said last week, if if the creator of the universe actually looks at you and me and says, in Christ you are complete, you are new, you are free, you are forgiven, you are redeemed, you're enough and you're significant, then it doesn't matter whatever voices you have in your head that say otherwise. it doesn't matter what other voices in your life say otherwise. The only opinion that matters is the creator of the universe because he trumps everybody else. Why? Because he's the creator of the universe and you're his child. So once you know who Jesus is and once you know who you are, then the last question or at least the next logical question is simply this. What is Jesus telling me to do? What's Jesus telling you to do? What's Jesus calling you to do? That's a word we've, we've lost touch with over the years. It used to be one that everybody had an, had an idea of what it meant. Uh, the word calling uh, in the Latin is the word voco. It's where we get our word vocation from. In other words, we used to tie what we do in life into a sense of what we're being beckoned and summoned and called to do by God himself. So here's what I know about, about calling. There's a couple things involved with it. There are some things that simply need to be done. Some things just simply need to be done. Uh, They're seemingly unnoticeable, minor, little things. And then there's this other category of things that are these big, major, deep, scary things that could only happen and you could only accomplish if Jesus himself empowered you to do them. But make no mistake, the best kind of life is lived where you do both. You do the things that need to be done and you do the things that you're called to do. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to explore what's a life lived doing both really look like and what would be the results of that. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and pull those out. We're going to be in the book of Acts again. Um, if you don't have your Bibles, it'll be, it'll be on the screens. We're going to be in Acts chapter, chapter 5. And we're, we've been kind of exploring how this, this group of believers has gone from this small group, 120 people who follow Jesus. And this thing has grown like wildfire at this point. We're looking at upwards of 15,000 men, women, and children who are part of this new distinct community of people who've been called out by Jesus to worship him and reflect the heartbeat of Jesus to a watching world. And so we're going to dive back into Acts 
chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 12 right after that really positive, encouraging Ananias and Sapphira story we looked at a couple weeks ago. All right, so here we go. Check this out, verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So this is a pretty dynamic movement at this point. God so powerfully equipped Peter and the apostles that people are just trying to get near them so that they can be healed. And the result of that, verse 14, is simply this. More than ever, believers were added. It was already big. Now it's just getting bigger and bigger. It's growing. In other words, the battle between the church and the gates of hell that Jesus said would happen and said the church would prevail in is being won by Jesus and is being won by the, by the church. See, I get, a really cool, I get a really cool perspective within our community, within our church, at both of our campuses. I get the opportunity to know a lot of people's stories, which means I know, I know the level of darkness a lot of us come from. And so I'm sitting in worship last week and we're singing this song, uh, the line that goes like this, the enemy is under your feet, I am free, I am free. That's a battle song. Anytime your enemy's under your feet, you have knocked that fool out or you're about to. That's, that's kind of a, that picture, your head on someone's foot, that's a, that's a picture of victory, all right? And so the song being sung there is a battle metaphor of, of God has conquered whatever comes against us in our lives. And as I'm singing that song, there's a couple of people that just walk in front of me as I'm singing it, and I know the level of darkness they've come from, and the fact that they are in a room worshiping Jesus is an act of God in and of itself. And that's a cool perspective. That's a cool seat that I get to have. Jesus is defeating the enemy just like he promised he would. Look, look at verse Verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and you remember the whole Sadducee thing, I won't bring it up again, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So again, the religious guys who run the temple, so you've got the first church who are meeting in homes, and then they get together in in the temple, and they notice this thing's getting big, it's getting out of control, they can't control it anymore, they're losing influence, they're losing power, the guys who run the temple are getting frightened, and they're getting scared, and so they throw all the apostles in prison, and we'll see how that goes for them. Look at verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord appeared, or opened the prison doors, and brought them out, and said, go and stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked, the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. That's an understatement. Wondering what would come of this. And, some t- and someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That's pretty cool, huh? I mean, I, just, I dig the fact that they get put in prison for preaching in the name of Jesus, they get miraculous set free from that prison and the first thing they do is go preach in the name of Jesus where they were arrested in the first place. 
think that's pretty cool. It's almost as if they understand this truth that would later be written in the Bible, which is this. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's almost like these apostles, they had this understanding that he who was in them was greater and stronger and mightier than their enemies. And they know it. And because of that, they're empowered and they're going to continue preaching in the name of Jesus. And it almost seems like preaching in the name of Jesus is something they can't help doing. It's almost like there's something like in their soul, in their bones that's pent up that people try to pack it down. People try to prevent them from doing it. They just can't stop doing it. And over and over again, they return to this teaching. And and Peter's going to give a little sermonette right here. And he's going to say the same thing that he always says. Look at this verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. I love how he always inserts that. Like every time he's like, there's this Jesus. And by the way, you killed him. The author of life. Oh yeah. You remember the guy you killed? Yeah, that was him. All right. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we're witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. In other words, they're going, listen, our job is to obey God. We're going to leave the consequences up to him. Whatever you do to us is up to you, but we got to keep doing what we've been doing. And this makes them mad as usual. Look at Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away from some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is of an, an undertaking of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Gamaliel's a pretty cool dude. He's a really famous teacher, rabbi, a Pharisee. He actually was the teacher of a guy we're going to meet later in the series named Saul, whose name later gets turned into Paul, who was incredibly influential in the New Testament. He basically gets up and goes, hey, just track with me here for a second, guys. Remember guys like Theodos? Remember Judas? Remember all these guys who kind of, they rise up, a bunch of people follow them, but as soon as they're dead, everybody disperses. Jesus rose up, a bunch of people followed him. He died and more people are following him. In other words, what he's saying is this. You may want to time out for a second. You may want to just watch this thing and see what happens. Because if this is an invention of man, it will destroy itself from the inside out. How do you know that? Because every invention of man destroys itself from the inside out. Look at history to prove that. But if it's not, you might find yourself picking a fight you can't finish. You might find yourself in a fight where you're opposing God himself. In other words, you may pick the wrong team, and that would be a bad idea. <laughs> Look at verse, verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They can't stop. They can't. They're doing what they're called to do because of it. Lots of people are bumping into Jesus. Lots of people are being changed because these apostles are getting to utilize their gift of teaching. It's benefiting everyone. But the organization of the church continues to grow. And as things grow, here's just a principle for life, they get more complex. 
They get more difficult. They run into all kinds of complexity and roadblocks. The more difficult, you know this, if you're, if you're a leader at all, you know this. It's really easy to do payroll when you have two employees. When you have 200, it gets a little dicey. You better have a system. You might want to invest in a computer maybe even, right? It's not just you with a checkbook. That's not what it is anymore. You don't need an HOA when there's two houses in the neighborhood. I don't think we need HOAs, period. But when you get 200, you have to have the HOA, right? With complexity often arrives conflict, roadblocks, and distractions. And that's, not, that's going to be true for the first church as well. And so we run into a roadblock in chapter 6, verse 1. Look at this. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint... Here comes the complaint department. By the Hellenists, I'll explain that in a second, arose against the Hebrews because their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. So we've talked about this around here before. Uh, Because Jesus' heartbeat is for widows and orphans, his church, their heartbeats for the widows and orphans in their community as well. So they, they had a food distribution that was meant to take care of widows and orphans. They bring food to the church, then people disperse it out to widows and orphans. Now, the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews that were not born in Israel who spoke Greek. And then there were the Hebrew Jews who were born in Israel who spoke Aramaic and, and Hebrew. And there was already some division amongst them. But in this case, the Hellenists raised their hand and go, you're playing favorites. Look at the church leaders, and they go, you're playing favorites, you're taking care of them, but you're not taking care of us. And so it doesn't matter even if this is reality. Perception is reality. In an organization, you have to deal with it. And so the apostles, as the leaders of the church, are now faced with something they have to deal with, a problem. And what they're about to say, the solution they're about to give at face value is going to sound incredibly arrogant. And you're going to hear this, and you're going to go, that just sounds awful. All right, check, don't believe me? Check it out. Look at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and laid their hands on them. And so if, if you're just reading at face value, you go, oh, I get it, so you guys are too good. You guys are too good to take care of widows, you guys are too good to wait on tables, you guys got to do all the high and mighty stuff, and preach and pray, and all that kind of good stuff, right? No, actually wrong, what they're doing here is really, really wise. What they're doing here actually makes a lot of sense, See, the apostles were taught by Jesus. They were the ones commanded by Jesus, equipped by Jesus, and gifted by the Holy Spirit to teach in the name of Jesus. And that teaching in the name of Jesus is what is transforming people. That's what's driving the growth of the church. People are bumping into Jesus, and their lives are being transformed in unbelievable ways. So these apostles, these guys who've been teaching in the name of Jesus, they could get involved in accounting. They could get involved in the number of widows and orphans. And they could get involved in mapping out the food distribution and the delivery routes and who should do it and when. And they could do it themselves. But something in their life would have to be sacrificed on that altar. And what would probably get less attention if they did that would be their primary gift, which is teaching, which is their calling, which is what they are summoned and beckoned by God and commanded by him to do. That would be an unwise use of their gifts, and it would prevent other people from being able to get involved in the ministry. So here's the reality around here. Jim and I talk about this around here all the time. In order for me to walk up these five stairs, in order for Jim to walk up these five stairs and the ones at the other campus, it does not matter how we spent our week. It doesn't matter how many good things we did. All right? It doesn't matter if we did a bunch of 
counseling appointments. It doesn't matter if we went to the hospital. It doesn't matter if we prayed with a million people. It doesn't matter if we did all those things. If we don't walk up those five stairs, having spent the time necessary to prepare a sermon, to prepare a message, to pray over that and prepare that whole thing, then we are misusing our gifts. If we spend our whole week counseling, first of all, a lot of people's lives are going to be wrecked because we're terrible at it. I did marriage counseling twice. Both times I got divorced, I called it quits. I'm like, I'm out. I'm not doing that anymore. And Jim's worse than me because the prerequisite for counseling is being able to speak in complete sentences. So you can't be a counselor, right? It's, you don't want us doing certain things. We're, we're very, very unbalanced. There's, there's things that we've been gifted to do, and we're called to leverage those things. So here's the way that looks in my life. I'm responsible to leverage, hang on to that word, my gift of teaching for everything it's worth to squeeze that thing and wring it out and get everything I can out of it, to refine it and sharpen it, to leverage literally means to use something to its maximum advantage. And you can't neglect it. Do you, do you guys remember, some, some of you are too young to remember this, uh, there was this guy named Michael Jordan, all right? And he retired from basketball the first time in order to play baseball. And I hated it. I loved Michael Jordan as a kid. I loved him. He was my favorite person in the world. And when he went to play baseball, it was awful to watch. And it did not matter if every now and then he hit a home run. The fact that I wasn't getting to witness the greatest basketball player in the history of the universe do what he does best. And if you think Kobe Bryant's better, you're just wrong, all right? (laughs) Was just a tragedy. It was a travesty because he wasn't using these God-given gifts to their maximum ability. He wasn't leveraging his gifts. See, your primary spiritual gift, when it's leveraged, is the thing. It's the thing that makes you come fully alive. It's the thing that makes your heart skip a beat. When I, when I walk down those five stairs at the end of every service, I always feel the same thing. That's exactly what I was created to do. That's why God put me on this earth. And if you don't know what that is, you need to figure out what that is in your life. I could throw out some broad categories. I know what it is for some of you guys. For some of you, your, your gift, your primary gift is relational. In other words, when you sit down with someone, you have this ability to speak into their life. You have this ability to listen really, really well. You have the ability to encourage people. You have this ability to, in a really non-judgmental way, correct people. You help people when you speak to them. You walk away from those encounters, and you know that's it. That's it. That's what I was called to do. Some of you, it's physically getting your hands dirty, rolling up your sleeves and doing work, building, creating, fixing all of those things. Some of you, it's, it's planning and strategy. You can sit down and solve problems and create steps. You love whiteboards and you love meetings. And back in the day, you loved Palm Pilots and now you like smartphones. Palm Pilots, Michael Jordan, same thing, all right? And so, <laughs> explain it to your 18-year-old neighbor, all right? Some of you just love that. You love that stuff. You love making a map and making a plan and then watching it unfold. Some of you, it's leveraging finances. I don't know how you do this, but some of you are just really good at turning $2 into $200. That's just how you're wired. You understand money. You understand how it works. You understand how to make more of it. Some of you, it's leadership. And you just go, man, when I'm leading, when I'm coaching, when I'm empowering others to do what they're trying to do, you just come fully alive. See, whatever that is, you are responsible to God, by the way, to leverage that for its maximum impact. And the reality is, some of those things, some of those primary gifts that a lot of us in this room have will be utilized inside the walls of this church. A lot of it won't. A lot of it won't, and that's totally fine. But you are responsible to leverage what you've been given 
to point people to Jesus. So what would that look like outside of these walls? Again, I can just kind of paint broad strokes and give some categories here, give some examples. I got, I got some friends in the fitness industry, and, and man, they leverage their spiritual gift of being able to lead and coach and train and inspire, and they do that with a purpose for the glory of God, and they do that in the context of their everyday, walking around, normal life, through their interactions, they share their story with people, and they, they tell people about Jesus, and they say, come and see, and they're making a huge impact in the community out there out there I've, I've got some friends who are they're tech guys web design nerdy guys all right and so they're 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 friends of mine and and when they got wind of this thing uh, i got this buddy we're going to do this podcast my friend who's a who's an agnostic we're actually going right, to we're going to actually do this and i can say his name now his name's elliot and so so we're going to get together and we're going to do this podcast me and elliot but here's the thing we don't know anything about doing a podcast all we know how to do is talk a lot the two of us and so i call my buddies together who are web designers and and marketing guys and they're we have lunch with them and we're like okay so like how do we record ourselves they're like don't worry about that we got that covered we're like okay so how do we get the podcast thing like on the intro web and they're like shut up we got that covered too and they're like and we're gonna we're gonna build this kind of platform and we're gonna do this on vimeo and youtube and blah 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 and i'm like we're just sitting there like okay you guys do your thing we'll do our thing and they're doing this just because they want to make an impact they're doing this my buddy elliot doesn't realize this is for the glory of jesus but it is all right and so that's how they're leveraging their, their gifts. And, and I know some folks who are really, really great at making money, and they leverage their gifts by being really, really generous, all for the name of Jesus. See, I don't know if you realize this or not. We don't shy away from this around here because we're not, we're not one of those churches. Uh, Elliot was telling me the other day, he was like, I was talking to my mom. Uh, she lives in, in Jersey, I think, and, and she's, she's Jewish. And she, he tells his mom, he's like, I'm, I'm going to be doing this podcast with my friend Scott. And she's like, the mega church pastor? She's like, how can you hang out with a guy who takes everybody's money and then gets in a Bentley? I'm like, dang, I'm missing out on the Bentley, you know? (laughs) That's not what we're about around here. That's not, listen, our books are open. Every dollar that goes into those buckets back there goes to the heartbeat of Jesus, furthering this ministry up here in Lafayette and around the world, places like South Sudan and Uganda and Mexico City. You can go look. So I can tell you with confidence when you put money in the bucket back there you are making an impact with a god-given gift that you've been commanded by him to leverage for his glory and for his name that will make an impact in the community so unashamedly for those of you who you've been kind of on the fence up here at this new location going am i in am i out if you're in you need to really be in because your money follows your heart and if your money doesn't follow your heart your heart's not actually there so there are some things that aren't necessarily your primary spiritual gift there's some things that are, right? And you got to find a way to do those things that are primarily your spiritual gift. But then there are some things that just need to be done. There's some things that just need to be done. So you roll up your sleeves and, and you do them. That's true in so many things. In sports, everybody wants to bat, bat fourth and be the one up in the bottom of the ninth with two outs and runners on, in scoring position when you're down a run. Okay, well, if you want to be that person, then you know what you need to do? Take batting practice for hours and hours and hours when nobody's watching till your hands bleed. Everybody wants the ball in their hands with a couple seconds left on the shot clock with a, with a, when you're down one, one point. But in order to do that, you better be prepared to take about a million jumpers when nobody's, nobody's looking. You do what needs to be done now so that you get to do what you want to do later. You don't have to believe in God, Jesus, the church, or any of that to know that's a principle for life. You do what needs to be done now so you get to do what you want to do later. I'll give you an example. It's pretty cool. We got this, we got this internship program at Flatirons, and so every year we get this, we get this batch of, of young people who are going, I'm either trying to figure out if I want to do ministry full-time with my life or, or I've already decided that, and this seems like a good entryway into that. And so we get these, this new batch of young people that we get to torture endlessly, which is awesome. And so they, they come to me sometimes, 
And, and every now and then they'll pass me in the hallway or they'll send me an email or something like that and go, hey, can I talk to you for a few minutes? And I go, absolutely, you buy lunch. And so I don't say that because that would be ramen noodles and that'd be terrible. And so, so we sit down and, and inevitably the question sometimes leads to this. They, they look at me and they go, so I want to I be a, a preacher. I want to be a teacher one day. I want to stand on stage. I want to teach. What, what do I have to do to get there? What do I have to do to do what you're doing now? And I always say the same thing. Simple. Roll up your sleeves and do everything that somebody tells you for years and years and years. Set up and tear down about a million chairs. Work your butt off while nobody's watching. Set up and tear down a bunch of sound systems, even though you don't know how to plug a speaker into a wall. Write, act, and film, and edit a bunch of videos, even though you don't know what you're doing. Write a million small group questions and outlines. Make a thousand volunteer calls. Train them, schedule them, equip them, create systems and procedures. Do a bunch of little tasks over and over and over again. And they always look back at me at the end of my little speech and go, what does that have to do with teaching? And the answer is everything. Everything. You have no credibility as a teacher if you aren't willing to do all those things for years. That on this side, as you're doing all those things, you do the best you can to volunteer to teach for everything you possibly can. You volunteer to lead every volunteer meeting you possibly can. You do everything you can to get on a stage and and be really bad at teaching until you're not really bad at it anymore. And then maybe one day somebody will look at you and they'll go, you know what, you should probably do this more. And then you get to do more of what you love to do, what you're empowered to do, what you're gifted to do, the things that you love to do, and less of the things that you don't like to do. But you spend a lot of time doing things you frankly just don't like to do so that one day you can do the things you like to do. That's how it works. Two of the guys, I don't know if you noticed it, that were appointed in that first church to wait tables and take care of widows and orphans were these guys named Philip and Stephen. We'll learn a little bit more about Philip and Stephen later in the next couple of series we're going to be in, but Stephen's a great preacher, it turns out. Totally willing to roll up his sleeves and wait tables. Philip has this unique ability to take complex truth and break it down in an understandable way in such a way that it transforms people's lives. Totally willing to wait tables. They roll up their sleeves and they do what needed to be done. Now, well, the question becomes, all right, then what needs to be done around here? There's a brand new church up here. What needs to be done what needs to be done? Let me, let me give you a few things that need to be done. Kids ministry. I'll give you some practical stuff. Seven of our best kids ministry workers just had to go home for the summer because they're college students. And you may think that that's not a big deal. It's a huge deal. That's a huge percentage of our kids workers downstairs. And we don't need to just replace them. We need to double that. We can double that. We really, really can. We, it looks like everything runs smooth. You know why it looks why everything runs smooth downstairs? Drugs. But other than that, it's, a, it's also... It's also on the backs of people doing double duty. People who go, okay, I'll stick around for another service even though I was going to go to church and worship with my family. I'll stick around so I can take care of people's kids. And it's people who serve at Lafayette and serve here because they just want this church to get off the ground. It's, it's time for us to roll up our sleeves up here. We, we, can, we can do that, all right? So go downstairs, sign up, walk right over to Lara and go, I'm in, I'm in. Student ministry, Ben Foote, our student ministries pastor up here, he, he's building this student ministries things from, from the ground up. And he, I love Ben. He's going to do an incredible job. He's so good with our students. And so if you're here and you're in middle school, high school, you need to meet Ben and you need to get involved in this thing. Go downstairs, go to a little table over there, introduce yourself. But also, if you're an adult and you want to speak into the lives of middle school, high school kids, you want an opportunity to do what maybe wasn't done for you at a critical point in your life, this is an opportunity for you to go, I'm in, I'm in. 
Some of us, guest services, they, we need more people in the parking lot. And I'll be honest with you, there are some people, there are some people out there who it appears when they put on that little shiny vest and you give them a wand, that they are responding to God's calling on their life by bossing us around, right? It's like they failed traffic cop school and this is the next best thing, all right? You know, and they're just waving us around. Some of us, that's not our gift. That's not our thing. That's not what we were, but you're not a lot of rock babies. And so this is a good opportunity for you, all right? It's a good opportunity for you to go, roll up your sleeves and go, I'm in. What needs to be done? Facilities. Our, our, Dean, our facilities guy up here, man, he, he works so hard, often by himself, cleaning up after 1,500 people are done coming through these doors on a weekend. It shouldn't be that way. He shouldn't be by himself. This is our church. This is our church. Roll up, let's roll, roll up our sleeves so that, so that Dean's not doing that by himself. Go downstairs, introduce yourself, and go, I can, I can run a vacuum. I can do all kinds of different stuff. Then there's some of you, man, you are, you are good with technology, like professional level, production level people. You're the ones who always hand me your business card out there, and you have some cool techie name on it and stuff like that. You don't know how to just hit play. You know how to make the thing that hits play. We need more of you, all right? We, we got people who are doing double duty all over the place, running monitors, running lights, running cameras, sound, all that kind of stuff. We need more of you. Go downstairs and see Matt Strong. He's the guy sitting at the front of the house booth right back there, and introduce yourself to him. Go down in the lobby and sign up and say, I'm in. See, there are some things that make you come alive, and there are some things that just need to be done, and whether they make you come alive or not is not the issue. They just need to be done. Find out ways to do both with your life. I'll give you a comparison. The objective of a family, one of the objectives at least of a family, is to build a home, not maintain a house. Like nobody goes, I just love maintaining this house. No, but we do want to try to create a culture in our family of a home. That's a little more intangible. That involves things like love and discipline and reading stories and laughter and tears and conflict resolution and a million other things. But you can't do any of those things if the house has fallen down around you, so you have to pick up a broom, you have to change the light bulbs, and you have to get out in the yard and you have to mow it, right? My kids, we, we got a relatively big backyard for Colorado, and I did that on purpose because I got a bunch of kids, but in order for them to play in the backyard, they got to pick up dog poop. That's just the way it works. That's the way it works in the church, too. So what's the result when a bunch of people, a bunch of people who know who Jesus is and they know who they are in Jesus, and they know what Jesus is calling them to do, what's the result when they do what needs to be done and then they also do what makes them come fully alive? Let me show you what it did in the first church. Check this out, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Three things happened. The word of God spread because the guys who were in charge of spreading it got to do it. The church grew. The number of disciples, the people who followed Jesus, multiplied greatly. And unlikely people came to follow Jesus. Did you catch verse 7? A huge number of priests became obedient to the faith. In the Jewish worship system, there were thousands of lower-level priests who got to serve in the temple maybe just a couple times in their life. And so they spent their life trying to connect people to God. The, the word priest literally means bridge builder, someone who connects one thing to another. And they, they had devoted their lives to this concept of trying to reconnect people to God. And this will absolutely blow your mind, especially if you grew up Catholic. But every person in this room who is a follower of Jesus, according to the Bible... Every person in this room is a follower of Jesus with the Holy Spirit in them is a priest. Is a priest. 
Don't take my word for it. Listen to Peter. He said it this way. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. Jesus was the living stone rejected by men. But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus in this room, you're a priest. You don't need a priest to connect you to God. You know why? Because you have a high priest who already connected you to God, and his name is Jesus. Go read the book of Hebrews if you don't believe me. He did what needed to be done. It is finished. It is complete. You, there's, it's not like he built the bridge 80% of the way, and you've got to build the bridge the rest of the 20% of the way. He connected you to God through what Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection. Now, he's gifted and empowered you to participate in pointing people to Jesus. He's empowered you to help people bump into Jesus. He's empowered you to build bridges so that people can bump into Jesus who built the ultimate bridge. He's made you into a holy priesthood. He, you know what happens when people who do what they're called to do say I'm in for that, that creates an excellent environment. And more and more people bump into Jesus. I think that's why so many priests came to faith in Jesus. They finally saw what they had devoted their lives to actually being accomplished. People being reconnected to God through faith in Christ, and they said, I'm in. See, there's this feeling. There's this feeling at the end of a fight, end of a workout, end of a competition, where you know you're laying there in a pool of your own sweat and blood and tears, and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, you spent everything you had. You left it all on the field. You left it all on the court. You left it all on the ring. There was nothing left. You had nothing left to give because you gave it all. That's the way I want my life to end. That's the way I want my life to end. At the end of my life, I want to be able to say, it's spent, man. It's run out. It's run dry. I wrung it out, got everything out of it. I leveraged it for everything that that I was given for Jesus, his kingdom, demonstrating with my life what Jesus is worth and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. I want to be a part of what Jesus is building. I want to give everything I have toward that. And there are two ways to do that with your life. One, spend your life on what God called you to do for the glory of his name. And along the way, do what needs to be done for the glory of his name. And if you're in for that, how do you know if you're in for that? Well, one, do you know, do you know who Jesus is? Number, who, number two, do you know who you are? Number three, do you now know what you've been called to do? Are you in? And if you're in, then maybe you need to get one of these rocks out right now. And some of you brought them back from last week. If you forgot them from last week, you can grab them in the wheelbarrows out there. Some of you brought yours back, threw it in the wheelbarrows. That was the wrong thing to do. You should have listened to the instructions. (laughs) Something else to do with it today. We're going to do two things at the end of our service today, all right? During this next song, we're going to take communion because we want to remember that Jesus spent himself on our behalf. He did what needed to be done for us that we could never do for ourselves. It's finished, it's done, it's complete. We don't play any part in our own salvation. None, zero zilch, none, zero. Am I clear? Okay, none. And because of that, we get to say, I'm in. I'm in. Jesus, you're the cornerstone. You've made me into this living stone and you're building us into this this living, breathing thing called the church. And so if I'm in, then I'm in fully. I'll do what needs to be done and I'll do what makes me come fully alive. So on your way out today, after the last song is over, there's this little well right in the back down this center aisle right here. Just throw this stone in there, throw this rock in there, just symbolically going, I'm in. And some of you, you've been in for a long time. You've been serving around here for forever. You've been doing all kinds of things. You've been rolling up your sleeves for a long time. Take that rock and just go, I'm still in. I'm still in. And for those of us who we haven't been in the game, this is your opportunity to go, I am, I am in. So let's do this. Let's, uh, let's pray, and then let's worship God together. God, thank you. 
Thank you for who Jesus is and thank you for what he's done for us. Thank you that his body was broken on our behalf and his blood was poured out to pay the ransom, to pay the price, the price of our sin and our shame so that we wouldn't have to receive condemnation and we wouldn't have to live under the weight of our own guilt, Father, so that we could live free and complete in you, so that we can know that we are enough, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done for us. God, thank you for doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. And now, God, we want to respond and and give back. We want to give to one another. We want to give to your church, and we want to give to the glory of your name, not so that we can earn any kind of standing with you or a relationship with you, but because we already have it. It's all for you. It's all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.